financially secure life even if you start investing only in your 30s or if you start so late do you need to boost your returns with day trading derivatives crypto but you don't really have to do any of that starting in your 20s would be ideal of course but 30s are as good a starting point as any for someone seeking to build wealth and you can do it with tried and tested assets so today we are chatting with prasanjeet dasgupta who's the chief financial officer of digital.ai and he's going to share with us his journey building wealth and all of his learnings on the way but prasanjeet uh, just before we start let me just ask you this you say you're a normal investor but you're actually a cfo so surely as a finance person you must have knowledge or access maybe which uh, regular white collar professionals such as myself don't have so did your finance background actually help you on your journey at all hey amit thanks and love to be on your podcast thanks very much for having me as far as being involved in finance and uh, having more access none of that's really true because it's a statistical fact that 80% of professional money managers i.e. people who are paid very very well to invest they fare out worse than any investor could have if they had just bought the market and kept investing in the market and achieved market returns so even i as a finance guy i'm interested in the stuff but i have no more access than anybody else and it's borne out that even the people who have access don't necessarily manage to do it any better off than the vast majority of other market participants Right actually that's a really interesting point Prasanjit the fact that even professional money managers often struggle to beat the market even more amit because unlike professional money managers individual investors have two major advantages the first one is you're on your schedule right so you're not on any quarterly schedule or any yearly schedule or any even five year schedule that a money manager has to be on to sort of quote unquote prove their worth and make money for their investors otherwise they would churn out of it you're in it for yourself you're in it for your family and whatever causes you like to support but this is uh, if you're investing in your 30s and given average lifespans are in the 70s and 80s you've got a 50 years of investing ahead of you and hopefully 20 to 25 to 30 years of that is going to be with income right so you've got a lot of money and a lot of time and times on your side which is not the case on a money manager side so you have that the second thing you do is even if you want to double in sort of individual equities and stuff i think your universe is much more than the typical money managers because they manage such insane amounts of money that their returns are always going to be challenged because they have to hit some really really big shots to actually make it work while you don't because you're investing for yourself this is really good actually the first point is something i'd mentioned in an early episode of of money talk which is that you have time that a professional money manager doesn't uh, i mean you take how much ever time you want you can invest and forget about it whereas they have to actively manage because like you said otherwise people will pull out money if they're not hitting their target returns so they have to work within a box and you certainly are not restricted by any such thing exactly so prasanthi tell us more about your money management or investing journey like you said you started a little bit late how did you start and what all did you do i graduated from amcal in 2000 and started working immediately after that uh, my first job was with the boston consulting group in germany in munich and i wasn't personally sure whether i would stay abroad permanently or move back to india at some stage and so i kind of did what the traditional indian 
growing up for 50 years had done. I put all that money into fixed deposits. I was single, didn't have a lot of expenses. So, you know, I was able to save a fair bit, but I put that all into classic 8-9% yielding Indian Forex, you know, and uh, honestly, providentially, that turned out to be okay because if you remember 2001, 2002, those were not great years for the not stock great. market with the dot-com <laughs> crash. So it turned out okay, but even if you had invest, started investing in the markets at that time and just kept on investing, you'd probably have done better. But it's really when I moved to the U.S. that I had to start investing. Now, it first started off with basically zeroing out all our savings because we wanted to buy a house and we had to basically pretty much put down everything. But I had to do it because, I mean, that was the only way I could afford my down payment. But again, I bought a house in the middle of the recession so that was not a bad investment either but that's really where my journey started and the first couple of a few years were really sort of plain vanilla in the sense that you know in the US you have what they call a 401k which is basically a retirement account where you can now it's earlier it was about 16000 now it's about $20000 a year and microsoft matches 50% of that so if you're sort of a double income household working in one of these companies. Lots of companies have similar structures. So you're looking at between 2020 and what Microsoft contributes as well, about 60K a year that you're putting away for 30, 40 years out. So I think that was my first steps towards a regular sort of a retirement income plan, right? There was a lot of stuff Microsoft offered in terms of actually putting a percentage of your salary in what they call employees from the stock purchase plan. So you could put up to 15% of your income into Microsoft stock and you could buy it at a 10% discount. So I used that as kind of an auto save mechanism for some time. So in 2012, 2013, I got into options trading. And this is because I read about it someplace and it was mostly plain vanilla stuff like trading puts. Now, what that means is if you feel that my, you like you would like to own Microsoft, but Microsoft stock is at 150 and you feel that that's too expensive. But if I got down to 100 bucks, I'll buy it. So you essentially, what you do is sell put options, which basically you commit to buying Microsoft stock at 100 bucks if it reaches below that price. And in return, the buyer of that option pays you a premium for selling him the or her the right to do so. So basically, what the simple thing is if Microsoft stays above 100 bucks, you collect that premium and that's yours. If it goes below 100 bucks, you're obliged to buy the stock. In 2018, 2019, I left Microsoft after almost 14 years. I joined Motorola. So again, a large, smaller, but still a large company. And I already had a bu the bulk of our savings invested in stocks. It had been 10 years of a bull market. And frankly, I was kind of seeing the frothiness in some areas, particularly in tech, where I actually had quite a bit invested. So I thought I should diversify a little bit. And so I started investing a little bit in non-liquid assets, mostly residential and multifamily real estate. Uh, I also did a bit of pre-IPO equity. The asset classes that you've invested in actually seems to have followed some sort of a continuum. They went from more traditional to more <laughs> exotic over time. Yeah. So you started with bank deposits and pension plans and employee yeah. stock options, which are pretty normal, like uh, yeah. regular people do it. And then yeah. you moved into options trading, uh, yeah. multi-family real estate and, and also unlisted equity investments. Yeah. All of which are more complex, less liquid and so on as well. So yeah. why do you think your portfolio evolved in that sort of fashion? Frankly, I would say, and the jury is still out on how these will be successful or more or less successful than the more traditional piece of my portfolio. 
I would say uh, I, I think the option trading started because I felt some of the stocks that I was interested in were really overpriced and I'd love to buy them when they got more reasonable and then collect the premium along the way if they stayed above my comfort zone, right? If they, if I felt they were overpriced, fine, I would just sell options and collect the premium. Uh, and this worked well, this worked well till you get greedy and over leverage, right? And it's still a fine strategy, I think, for investing in, in sideways markets or markets where, you know, you would like to get a discount on the price, but you're pretty confident that you would like to own that, own that stock, right? So I think that's where it went. And then the, the real estate stuff, this was really a couple of years back when I felt that the markets were getting a little bit too expensive. Uh, and I wanted sort of something that would sort of both give me somewhat stable and recurring income, which these do because they invest in multifamily real estate. So there's a, they're really built to rent kind of investments where you, know, you got people there and the incomes based on the rent that uh, you collect. And I didn't want to manage real estate. I mean, it's a pain. My home managing the personal home alone is is painful enough but i wanted it to be somewhat uncorrelated and the other thing is frankly having a long time horizon and we spoke about this before i think it's a feature not a bug and also being illiquid as long as you're not doing stupid stuff is also a feature not a bug because you can't touch it right so that almost forces you to be patient and ride out and doesn't you can't panic because you can't panic you can't panic sell because you can't do it right it's illiquid so i think those were really the diversification was really the main impetus because i felt the stock markets were getting a little bit too frothy i actually wanted to kind of highlight the point you made about employer match so interestingly i worked in the us for about three years and i worked at citigroup and they had an employer match for the 401k as well yeah and you know weirdly enough for the first year I didn't take advantage of that. I was like, oh, you know, don't don't understand, don't care. I'm not going to be in the US forever, all of that. Yeah. But then I realized this is free money. I mean, it's so free silly money. not, to, not yes. to take advantage of the match. So if anybody anywhere has a pension plan or this kind of a retirement fund where the employer is matching, it's a no-brainer for somebody to take advantage of that match. And that's a tax saving because you're taking it out. It's pre-tax income. So that amount is not taxed. The amount that Microsoft contributes on top is not taxed either till the age of 70 in the US, right? So, and after that, it is taxed at ordinary income rates. But if you're not working at that time, your income is likely to be lower. So you're basically deferring your tax liability and you're hopefully paying it out at the time that your tax burden is going to be lower. But yeah, to your point, absolutely. If you're, you know, the first thing you should be doing is get taking advantage of the match because that is just not doing it is just dumb because it's a salary increase effectively. It's something that the company is paying for you and it's not taxed. It sounded to me earlier uh, when we were discussing this whole options thing that uh, you actually had a pretty bad experience. So if you don't yeah. mind kind of sharing a little bit more with, with our audience, what were you trying to do and what happened? And Yeah, really went two things. A, it's very tax inefficient because all those gains and premiums are taxable at the short term tax rate. So basically if you're in a high tax rate, it is taxable at, a, at that rate. And secondly, it works great till it doesn't. I mean, it's horrible in terms of a market crash and it doesn't even have to be a huge crash if you're being stupid like I was and and margining stuff and all, which is basically you're kind of borrowing money to fund these options. And if the market goes against you, you can lose a lot of money very, very quickly, which happened to me in 2014, 2015, sometime around that, and also 2020. And the worst part of it is you know the stocks that you're then being forced to buy 
you know they're great stocks and you know you want to hold on to them but just because you've over leveraged yourself you can't and you have to force sell and by the way that i think that accounts for a lot of the panic selling that we are seeing now and that we see that's why crashes tend to be so fast because they tend to cascade on themselves yeah this spiral essentially yeah uh, yeah. yeah and uh, i think uh, what you said i mean this is the whole concept of margin calls etc right like exactly uh, companies and individuals are buying on leverage and yeah. then if things go below a certain threshold or above a certain threshold depending on how you bet yeah uh, then you have to sell in order to cover that loss yeah i had the margin call once and it was the worst day of my investing life and it is not fun so i would not recommend that to anybody what i was trying to do is eke out more and more option premium and that's fine but i think you got to have the capital to support it and i frankly didn't so what ended up happening is the stock went down all of a sudden so options trading is great for when stocks are going up that it's by definition fine but even when they go down slowly that's okay i mean you go down half a percent a day 0.3% a day that's okay it doesn't you still can make decent money what you get in trouble when you've basically when the market crashes you get you can get in serious trouble when if you don't have enough capital because then by the way you just realize your dream you are getting to buy those stocks that you like in theory that you like at the price you wanted to pay for them it's just that if you put too many chips against that i you said okay i'm going to buy 1000 shares of apple well you better make uh, at 100 bucks you better make sure you have 80000 bucks in your account to cover that right and if you don't what ends up happening if you make too many of those bets and all those stocks start falling at the same time what happens is that you will be required you are obliged to buy all that stock at that prices and when your money runs out then your broker will actually start liquidating or selling those stocks at the current prices so you will lock in losses because let's say you would sold an option to buy apple at 100 apple crashes through 100 and then it goes to 80 the broker will sell your stock at 80 and why you've just logged you've just guaranteed yourself $2000 loss on every 100 stocks because you run out of capital and that's definitely something that happens to a lot of people who don't know what they're doing as I did obviously at that time because it happened to me and it's one of the most disheartening things that can happen to you because you're like no I don't want to sell I don't want to sell I'll hold on I'll wait for it to go up but you can't because you've over leveraged yourself wow that is some story so effectively you've taken a bet which actually turns out to be right but you overbet on that so you don't have enough capital to actually satisfy the bet Exactly. Uh, that's the greed part of it. So it's like yeah. you were taking a bet but not quite believing that it's going to happen almost. In some ways, yes, in some ways yes. That's that's actually a very good way of putting it because you don't really believe that Apple can go down so cheap. Yeah. And by the way, at that point, you actually the last thing you want to do is sell and the thing you want to do is buy more of it, right? At those low prices. But you can't because you've just lost the ability to put that capital to work. Wow, that is crazy. And obviously you simply can't control it because you've set this whole you've set this ball in motion at the start when you made those yeah. bets you might have made those bets 3 months back 6 months back a year back sometimes and if they were it's all great till the market crashes 20% in a month and then you're like okay you're left holding the bag so wow yeah. that is that's huge yeah i mean thanks for sharing i think it's good to hear it 
sort of real life from someone because you read about all of these and yeah some hedge fund has lost money and folded yeah. but you know a hedge fund is not a person so it it doesn't matter no. so much to the rest of us but it's good to hear it from a, an actual person and to understand the risks in in real life so what did your family say about this when it was happening i don't think i was super transparent to them and thankfully the market turned just in time and yes that was a lesson to me and going forward that was actually that resulted in important lessons like always having a cash cushion and they were even in that time i could have done certain things had i known how to do them in a certain emergency fund raising i could have consolidated assets and put them into that so that i had some cover which i actually did put in place and which by the way enormously helped me in 2020 which was again the last big covid crash when the market dropped 30% in that time so it was a painful loss but i didn't unlike the first time it was painful for everyone but unlike the first time i didn't have to force sell so i could participate when it came back now we'll see what happens with this one yeah, yeah thanks for sharing and in return let me also say that i've had my hideous investment as well not in options and stuff because i i'm too scared to do things on margin and anything that has leverage but when oil prices had turned negative and stuff i was looking for oil as a commodity and i hit upon this one fund which i really didn't understand much about and i thought is just one normal fund which invests in this commodity and it yeah. turned out to be a futures like a fund that invests in futures and then okay. when oil turned negative all hell broke loose and this fund long story short i think i bought in at 13 bucks or 12 bucks and went down to 2 dollars before i was like okay This is it. It's just going to zero out at this rate, so I'm just going to sell it. But did you buy before oil went negative or when oil went negative? Bought before. So uh, before. I oh, think okay. oil was dropping, and it seemed yeah. obvious to me that it can't stay at twenty dollars, thirty dollars a barrel for. Yeah. You didn't price in the minus thirty-seven dollars. Exactly. <laughs> didn't price it in, and it was yeah. some futures thing that has to roll over every month, and there was some lot yeah. of technicality and something called contango, which I only learned yeah, once yeah, I was yeah. losing yeah. money big time. <laughs> yeah, no, that was just insane because you were literally being paid to take oil off oh, the yeah. business. So, yeah. So we we talked about the, the the disaster. So what are some of the investments that have turned out really well for you? See, I think, and this goes back to the first point we talked about. Some of the most simple things and some of the things where I've kind of literally I shut. automatic what's been even more actually my wife's a big great example of this because she's like don't sell my stuff and and she's been at microsoft now 7 8 years but she's like i'm going to put 15% of my salary into that and i'm just going to stay put and nothing you're not to touch that even no matter how high uh, microsoft goes and that's been a huge success because the stock's done well but i think over time it's raised its dividends so it's actually just paying us back also apple personally for me apple's been a big success because i did feel it was seriously undervalued in the early 2010s so it's the biggest part of my it's the biggest individual stock in my 401k so apple and microsoft i mean very traditional and then again but the biggest thing has been really that systematic investment in the 401k mostly in index funds in the S&P 500 a little bit of bonds like put 80% S&P 500 20% bonds those have been really the highlights you know uh, some of those pre IPO investments have done well but some have not so i would say it's kind of a wash really the simple stuff's been worked out the best for me 
I think that's good insight as well, which is the simple stuff often works out the best. And yeah. the reason for that, I mean, it's simple because it has a long history and everything is adapted around it. People understand how to do it. There's many ways to invest in those things and so on. Yeah, and I mean, one thing, if I might add, it's actually if you invest in index funds, it almost is an automatic stabilizer because the worst performing stocks are kicked off the index. So companies that have lost market share, lost competitive advantage. they're kicked off the index and they disappear and they're replaced with companies that are performing well so you know you are actually over if you look at it over 50 100 years the composition of the s&p 500 has changed significantly the stocks in it have changed significantly so by just investing in it at an extremely low cost i mean i think it co- you can buy funds that cost 2 or 3 dollars per 10000 dollars of investment so that's an insanely cheap way to invest you can basically get the top 500 stocks at any given point that are doing well right and it almost acts as an automatic money manager for you and you don't have to do anything and like yeah you'll not get warren buffett like returns but i mean beating 80% of people who are paid to do this that's not a bad outcome tell me more about your property investments because that seems to be like a large chunk of your investing portfolio I think property has a couple of advantages particularly in the US I don't know about other countries but definitely in the US it's the one place where the only real way to buy property is on leverage right because you're putting 20 or 25% down you're borrowing the rest now in the US the big advantage is that if you buy a property for yourself you can get a tax deduction on the mortgage interest you pay for it and mortgage interest rates apart from the huge rise now for a long time i mean last year you could get a more 30 year mortgage at 2.5 to 2.75% and then if you discount the tax deductibility of that you effectively are getting a 30 year mortgage at a 2% effective rate right which is just it's kind of a no brainer investment right so and you can do it across both your home or your primary residence and your rental properties you can because you can show that as an expense right so if you can borrow at 2% in an asset that over time generally tends to grow you know even if it grows 3 4% a year if you're paid in only 20% so you have a leverage of 4 to 1 right so that kind of effectively gives you double digit returns at a cost that is just 2% effective right so i think that and the other thing about property is that you don't get those wild swings that you see in the stock market and it tends to be somewhat uncorrelated there are times ever and it's also kind of a force saving right because it's illiquid so you can't say oh my god my property is down 30% and i have to sell as long as you're either living in it or you're renting it out and your renters paying their bills you're kind of secure from a cash flow perspective as well you tend to worry less about appreciation again i keep coming back to the things the things you see the le- least and worry about the least they tend to be the, your biggest winners over time if your time horizon is long enough Yeah that's right so actually that's a good segue into maybe let's discuss some of the main lessons that you've learned from your investing journey Yeah I think the biggest lesson is that investing doesn't have to be complex all you really have to do is set aside the maximum amount of money that you can afford to do so and put it in the markets to work and just keep doing it over and over every month over your career and I think that will guarantee you better results than the vast majority of investors but the discipline to do that every month regardless of whether markets are going up down or sideways that's the key thing i think the two biggest success factors in my mind in investing are patience and discipline if you have those two 
then I think you can really forget about how your stocks are doing in any particular given month or quarter. Just focus on why you're doing this and when you actually need the money or the fruits of your investments to cash out against those. So I think that's the biggest lesson, I think. Secondly, I would say if you're not interested in researching the market and buying individual stocks, don't do that. Don't go on tips from friends on, hey, this is great. If I had to trade on it, I would get the direction 50% wrong. It's funny, but once uh, we printed just a bad quarter at Microsoft and I was like, oh my God, I can't sell, but I wish I would, I could have because I know this is a disaster. The stock went up 5% because people had expected an even worse quarter. So it's again, it's a fool's game to trade on individual stocks unless you really, really have a feel for the market. So I, I would say that. We talked about leverage. I won't mention it too much again, but borrowing is dangerous. Apart from real estate, I would encourage people not to do that. Or if they do that, keep it modest and ensure that you can, the markets can fall 30, 50%. You will lose a lot of money. Everyone will, but ensure you do not get margin called. Take your, you leverage to an extent that you're able to do that. And finally, I think in some ways you think about the end goal in mind, right? Why are you doing this for? Is it for retirement security? Is it to buy a home or put down a down payment for a home? Is it to fund kids' education? Because the types of assets you would invest in would be different based on the time frame for when you would need those resources, right? Because if you've got to pay for your kids' education in two years' time, you shouldn't be investing in stocks because the, if the market goes down 30%, what are you going to do? You have liabilities or outflows that are that you know are going to come at a certain point in time. You should be fairly confident that you are going to have that amount of money with a certain amount of cushion. So, But if that's eight or 10 years out, if you have young kids, yeah, you should probably have a decent chunk of your money in, in the stock market. That's the other thing as well. Again, for someone who is not into this big time, I'd say just think about the goals and what you need what you need to do to fulfill those goals. Yeah, actually this event-based or goal-based approach is uh, something that I'm a big fan of and I've been trying to do it for ourselves, but it's in theory, it's something that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, which is, you know, you have big life events, you make sure that you plan around those events. But it's easier said than done in that yeah. respect, which is why what most people do is just say, okay, I'm just going to maximize my wealth and, you know, do the other way around, which is just focus mm. on inputs and not on the output. Is there a way that you think one can actually structure around these kinds of events? Look, Amit, I think for us, really, the two big events that we need to plan for people like us is kids' education, super expensive in the US, probably Singapore as well, and our own retirements, right? Because I don't think we can count on any government funding for to fund our retirements. Anything that does happen is kind of a bonus. So luckily, both those are fairly predictable in terms of when you might want to look to retire or use the reti word retire within air quotes because none of us might want to retire per se, but at least be financially free to pursue yeah. our passions at the time that we might want to do them without having to rely on a regular paycheck. That's what I define retirement as, right? That you are financially free and you don't have to work. Whether you choose to do or not is a completely different question. So I would say those two are the main things. Now, in the US, again, you can actually plan for your kids' education. There are tax advantage plans that allow you to do that. So I, fund, I went ahead and funded four years each of public education, university education for each of my kids. So that's done. 
So I talked about how we pay, our, pay ourselves first in terms of maxing out our 401ks and the employee stock purchase plans. So that's the one thing we do for retirement. And the other thing I've done that's event driven is the college uh, fund for my kids. Right. Okay. So I think my takeaway from this is all the stuff you said, of course, you're in the US and there are certain schemes in the US. But everywhere around the world, there are targeted schemes for targeted events. So at the yes. very minimum, one can aim for that. So use your uh, whatever the pension or the retirement fund concept is, whatever the education fund concept is, yeah. or any such plans that one can use for specific known, pretty much known purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think for younger investors, I guess the one of the big priorities might be saving down a down payment to buy a house. So if you start working at whatever, 22, 23, if you're looking to buy a house in five, six years, then I would say you have a fairly good idea of how much right. what down payment you need. You might look at a more balanced outcome where you get some of the appreciation potential from a stock market fund, but you also have a little bit of downside protection. Yeah, that's right. So I think what you're saying is know upfront what are some of the big ticket items and roughly when that's going to occur. And then yeah. you, if there's a targeted fund, just, just put money into that fund and forget about it. Or yeah. if there's nothing targeted like down payment for a house, then just plan for that and put it, you know, where it makes most sense to get to. Yeah, that. again, I mean, even for a house, you will have some idea, hey, given my income where I'm at right now, given the type of house I'm looking to buy, here's how much I'll need to put down as a down payment, right? So you have to have some right. idea of how much you need. And based on that and how much you have and how much you can save, you can build up a plan that enables you to do that. Actually, it's not too much more complicated. It's not a very complicated Excel spreadsheet yeah, to yeah. get you. Okay, you know, we've talked about your journey and you've done actually quite a few different things and had your highs and lows and so on. So looking back, what advice would you give people who are starting out on their investing journey or maybe they're early in their journey right now? I think I would say, first thing I would say, I would start early. I, I would start, again, what I call pay yourself first, which is the first few years of your career. Yeah, maybe you're not earning that much, but expenses also tend to be low because if you're single, you don't have other liabilities. You know, your rental expense is probably going to be your highest, your biggest ticket item. So this is the way to re really put in that discipline of putting in the maximum of whatever you can save in that because... It's interesting that you're saving a comparatively small amount of money relatively to what you'll be doing later, but that money has the potential to compound for 40, 50 years, right? So it's going to give you a lot of bang for your buck in later years, right? Because that, that's going to snowball and compound on itself. So just put everything that you can maximize your savings potential and then just invest systematically in the market every month or every so often that you are, but focus on actually following that discipline plan, right? Save consistently and let compounding do the work. That's something I did not do in the first eight or nine years of my career, but I think you'll do well. The other advantage is, I mean, a lot of companies, you'll get matches. I mean, there's stuff like this to any, if you're saving X, you can get to at least 1.2x or 1.5x even in some circumstances by things that the government or your employer might have put in place for you. I think we talked about that earlier, right? The second thing is if you're not super interested in this, but just want to grow and do other things with your life, unlike me, there's a human urge to just tinker and do something. 
And if you avoid that, you'll often make more money than by doing nothing and just letting things be. Index funds, I think, are very, very efficient way for most investors, for 90% of investors, because they're super cheap. Actually, you don't even have to pay a financial advisor. I haven't had one, and I don't think I need one, actually, because it's it's just all the information's out there, and it's really not that complicated. And then we talked about real estate. I like investing in real estate because I think it is force-saving. It is a place where leverage actually helps and works in your favor. The interest rates are tax deductible. So if you can put down money to buy a house, I would recommend it. Now, there are disadvantages because housing ties you down. It's difficult to move. Transaction costs are higher. So you can't just pack up, cut your lease in short and just move somewhere else. So there are real costs to it. And there's all these discussions where think, hey, if you invested the down payment, then you might do better than if you invest in a house. But the thing is, housing's also emotional. I think it is very emotional for a lot of people. And it's a very personal choice as well. I think it can be a good financial choice. But again, there's definitely trade-offs to it that I mentioned. It definitely uh, limits your flexibility. And finally, I would say just from a big, big picture, Now, the whole point of investing, unless you're probably a Buffett or someone who does this for a living, is not to show who has the maximum returns. What I find really beautiful is this quote from Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22. He was at this hedge fund billionaire's party sometime in the 1950s. An acquaintance got up and asked him, hey, don't you feel jealous because that guy's got so much and you're such an awesome writer and he basically trades stocks and he's got so much money. And Joseph Heller said, he's, I've got something that he'll never have and that's enough. You know, and the word enough, I think, is just so, so meaningful. Aha, it's easier said than done. You always want, more is always better, but you know, think about what enough means for you and that's, uh, and work towards that. Yeah, I think that is one of the most valuable points from this whole conversation, which is the concept of enough. For most people, that enough number tends to keep moving. Like I, I know I had some enough number and that's yes. probably changed like four times in the last yes. 10 years or so. It also doesn't help that now you can actually see within quotes, you can see how other people are living and they seem to be living extremely well versus you are doing whatever you're doing, saving money and so on. But yeah. you don't know what their lives are like inside. You only see the Instagram yeah. version of their life. I will say, by the way, enough doesn't mean that you have to sort of never go out, sort of live like a hermit. Absolutely not. I think you should absolutely look. And as I said, it should be tied to your goals, right? So I, for me, me having a fancy car was never, it just didn't appeal to me. I could not care less. So we don't do that. I drive sort of seven, 10 year old cars and I'll keep driving them till I can't drive them anymore because they will just not work. But for some of my friends, that's part of their aspiration and what their life goals are. And that's fine. Thankfully, my wife and I have relatively inexpensive hobbies. We like biking. So I've got a nice bike. I mean, at some point, my bike was actually worth more than the car I was riding. Uh, True story. It was a good bike and it was not such a good car. But I would say it's very, very personal, right? So focus on what's personal to you and focus on what you need to do to make that happen. And yeah, as you said, Amit, what's personal to you and what's important may change and that's okay. But again, think about, okay, does that really make you happy? Is that fancy new car going to make you happier? And chances are not really. On the other hand, is that awesome trip to somewhere you've always dreamt of? I'm a huge cricket fan. Something I would absolutely love to do is 
travel to Australia when I'm retired, travel to the West Indies and follow the cricket team around. And is that something that will make me happy? You betcha. So, you know, that is part of my life goals and something that it's more time than money, frankly, at this point. But again, that's something that is a life goal that I will be working towards. So again, very, very individual, very personal. Day. So Prasanji, thanks a lot for sharing all of this. Just a last couple of questions, maybe, which is yeah. given your experience so far, what are some actionable ways in which our listeners can implement these ideas or just get started in Be On The Right Foot? Yeah, I would say these days it's super easy to get started investing in the stock markets. You can open a brokerage account in whichever geography you're located. They're often no minimums or very, very modest minimums. I mean, in the US, you can open up an account for $100. I actually am going to do it for my 16-year-old because he wants to get started. I'm like, yeah, it's actually good that he, I'm going to fund a little bit of it. He has some savings and we'll see how he does. But look, if a 16-year-old can do it and he can do it on his own, you can do it as well. It's super easy. And put some money in just low-cost index funds. I would say it's a good time to invest right now with the recent downturn in the market. Your starting point is actually lower than it would have been just three months back. So not a bad time. It can go lower. But again, remember what I said, put money in that you can put in sort of every month or every quarter or at whatever interval makes sense to you. So that's the first thing, right? Taking action on that if you haven't. And that you should do whether if you're getting started in your 20s or your 30s, if you haven't gotten started yet, I would say the first thing to do is get started. Get started first. Now, if you're interested in researching individual stocks, you got to do a little bit of hard work. You got to learn a bit of accounting and how to analyze financial statements. But there's a bunch of websites and Twitter accounts that are a great resource for this. There's frankly a lot of really nice knowledge on the internet. There's this Twitter account by the name of 10K Diver. Uh, really, really breaks out financial statements for beginners beautifully, illustratively. And you don't need more than 8th grade math to understand it. Actually, it's not super exotic. If you happen to be in an industry, I think it's more insightful and maybe easier for you to get started on stocks that you understand because you know how the company and how it operates. Real estate, actually, if you're interested in real estate, I'm sure there's a number of crowdfunding sites everywhere in the world. In the U.S., there's definitely a few that allow you to participate in opportunities that are typically not available for elsewhere or they're not liquid. You need to have a fairly decent income for this, but if you're doing reasonably well, it's not out of the realm for folks. So that's kind of what I would suggest. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of entertaining websites. Motley Fool's really good. There's a number of books. Morgan Housel, he's one of my favorite investment writers. He used to write for The Motley Fool. He has a bestseller called The Psychology of Money. It's a quick read, but again, all very philosophical rather than focusing on this or that strategy. I found that very meaningful. There's a guy called Nick Maggiuli. I follow him on Twitter. Again, great data-driven approach on why a consistent, simple, and a long-term strategy works for most people. I'd recommend that. And then if you're in the US or even outside, a Morningstar subscription is pretty good value. It's probably just a hundred bucks for a year. And it's got a lot of good advice on a number of topics, not just stock picking, but a number of different topics. So I think there's a bunch of ways to get started. Again, with social media, there's just the cost to entry or the barriers to entry are very, very low. And people sort of dunk on Robinhood and everything for all the excesses they have are responsible for on the crypto side. But they have really democratized investing. And so for someone who wants to get started and doesn't have a lot of resources, you know, it is really a good way to get started as long as you don't get into 
some of the craziness that's also out there. So, Prasenjit, thank you so much. This was a really entertaining conversation, and I really loved chatting with you on this topic. And anyway, catching up after quite a while. Hey, thanks, Amit. Yeah, it was great catching up again, and I uh, loved the conversation. So, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining and for those listening, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a bit different from our usual discussions around specific financial topics, much more broad ranging, much more about what a regular person might actually do. And I hope took away from this the the main lesson which is that you just have to get started and you can make money and build wealth doing normal things. In fact, you could possibly erode wealth by doing all the exotic things. So Yeah, so thanks a lot for joining. If you like this episode, please rate us 5 stars. Uh we were Prasenjit and Amit with Money Talk. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks Amit. Bye. Thanks. Bye.